1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among humans knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak. Not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord? that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you for your patience with my lingering illness. Sisters and brothers in our Lord Jesus Christ, I've heard people joke a number of times in my time in the church that we are a people who are committed to death, that we are committed to death. And it can sometimes seem that whenever an important question or issue comes up, whenever something needs to get done, whenever there's a question about how to move forward, we strike a committee. We spend a significant amount of time in deliberative assemblies, in council, at classes, at synod, making decisions about how to do things together as a church. Just this past Wednesday, I was at a meeting of Classes Huron in Palmerston, where delegates met from all the churches in our region from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. to learn together, to hear reports from our joint ministries, and to deliberate and discuss important decisions for the church in our region, nine to five, and we do this three times a year. 
This coming week, Ashley and I will be in Grand Rapids, where she will sit through three full days of meetings as part of her work on the Denominational Council of Delegates. And then later this summer, delegates from all over the Christian Reformed Church in North America will meet in Grand Rapids for synod for a full week and a bit. It can sometimes seem like all this committee work is just a waste of time. Some people complain about the slow pace of change in the church, seeing the deliberative work of committees and assemblies as simply de de delaying the inevitable change that is coming. Other people think, why use all the time and energy of all these different people when one person could do it just as well? We appoint a committee to write a study report on a particular issue when it could be more effective to just appoint an expert to write a study report and distribute that to the churches. Actually, a funny story, in 1973, when the first, uh, your mom, your dad was on that committee, um, when the first study committee report on women serving in ecclesiastical office uh, came out, um, the synod the, the study report in 1973 said that there was no good biblical argument to deny women ecclesiastical office, and Synod promptly appointed a study committee to study the study committee's report. Why all this time in committees, in deliberation, in discussion, in learning? Why can't the church just decide what we're going to do and go for it? Why all these meetings to decide how to do what we've decided to do or how to decide what, how to decide what we want to do? From what we can tell in the Corinthian church that Paul is writing to, they definitely were not having meetings where they decided together how they were going to move forward. Paul is writing to a congregation that is torn apart by internal divisions and factions. Different people in the church were following different leaders, following different teachers. Some claimed Paul as their teacher and leader. Others claimed to be following the teachings of the apostle Peter. Still others were following the instruction of a preacher named Apollos who had come to Corinth from Alexandria in Egypt to serve as one of the pastors of their worshiping community. And still others claimed that they were following no teacher but Christ himself. And what they were doing, these Christians in Corinth were adopting a kind of approach to learning and to having opinions that was uh, typical of philosophers and teachers in their culture. Corinth was a well-known center of philosophical thought and debate, and disciples of a particular philosopher would learn what that philosopher taught and would live it out and defend it fiercely. And so you have Stoics and Epicureans and Platonists and Cynics arguing in public about the right way to live, each following their chosen teacher. And sometimes these philosophical rivalries turned into all-out brawls in the streets of the city. We don't think that there were brawls hap happening in the church in Corinth. But from what we can tell, it looks like the Corinthian Christians were adopting this kind of a model of learning within the church with different factions forming around these different charismatic leaders and teachers and their ideas of what it meant to live a life that was pleasing to God. So each faction believed that they had chosen the right super spiritual leader who would lead them to a true 
secret spiritual knowledge that would bring them to a new level of enlightenment and spiritual illumination. Spiritual wisdom, that's what the Corinthian Christians were after. A secret wisdom that would make sense of everything in the world, in life, answering all of the complicated questions of life and death and being and happiness and evil and flourishing. A silver bullet of spiritual knowledge that would carry within it the secret to a flourishing and happy life in the kingdom of God. How often aren't we tempted to find that silver bullet? Rather than taking responsibility for our own spiritual growth, for faithful, everyday living, we look endlessly for a super spiritual leader who can give us easy answers to the complicated questions of life and ministry. Three simple steps to a life of kingdom flourishing. Seven essential strategies to unlock the Spirit's power in your small group. Twelve easy initiatives for guaranteed church growth. Two weeks ago, when we looked at Micah chapter 8, we read the prophet's powerful reminder. The Lord has shown you what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to live justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. God has shown us what is good. God has shown us how to live lives that are pleasing to him. So why is it that we spend so much time chasing after charismatic leaders who promise to give us the secret to unlocking the mystery of faith? I've always been hesitant of people who come onto the stage proclaiming that they have a new and innovative interpretation that nobody has ever thought of before. And I get the impression that the Apostle Paul would have been too. Because the Apostle Paul, in response to these claims of so-called spiritual wisdom, in response to these cults of personality that have sprung up around himself and Peter and Apollos, in response to these factions in the church claiming that they have unlocked the spiritual secret wisdom of God, Paul turns it all on its head. The wisdom of God, he says, is Christ crucified. And this secret, this spiritual secret wisdom has been revealed to us all. Christ crucified. That's where true wisdom is found. Not in well-crafted arguments, not in strategies or initiatives, not in charismatic leaders, not in seven easy steps, but in Christ crucified. True wisdom, Paul says, is found in the broken body and poured out blood of our Lord, the one who comes to us not in power and glory, but in humility and in abjection. True wisdom is found in the broken body of our Lord, of which we are made members by his Spirit. And this is the great mystery that Paul is after here, that by the power of the Spirit, we are united with our Lord, with our crucified Lord, that by the power of the Spirit, we are made members of his broken body so that we may be transformed. The Spirit is poured poured out, Paul tells us, on all God's children, not on a special chosen few, not on the elite, not on the super spiritual, but on 
all. And that then becomes the place where we seek wisdom in the voice of all the members of Christ's body. And this is something that we're going through right now with our current conversation in our church about the evening service. The evening service is something that has been uh, discussed and talked about at our church for the past 50 years, if not more. I didn't look past the minutes farther than 50 years back. Um, And the council has asked several committees and assemblies to offer their input. And so the worship committee reviewed possibilities. The elders and deacons will be meeting in March to discuss this further. And the whole process is being done publicly so that people can offer their thoughts, their wisdom to their elder and deacon. And hopefully in the end, we will come to a conclusion that is pleasing both to God and to our worshiping community. Another example is Pastor Carl's retirement. At the classes meeting this Wednesday, this past Wednesday, council submitted a recommendation that classes Huron approve the retirement of Pastor Carl Galenzi for this coming May. And some people wonder, why does Classis have to, have to approve Pastor Carl's retirement? And the answer is that Community CRC does not own Pastor Carl's ministry. Neither does Pastor Carl own his own ministry. Pastor Carl's ministry belongs to the whole church, the whole big church. And so the classes, as well as the local congregation, get to have their say about when that ministry is ended. The Spirit works through the whole church. And the same is true for me, for every minister in the CRC. My ordination doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to community CRC. It belongs to the whole big church. I had someone ask me when I announced our first call in the bulletin why the process had to be so public. Why couldn't the church just give Ashley and me some time to discern for ourselves before we share with the congregation what our decision is? Why put us through this whole public ordeal of wrestling and praying about our future? And my answer to that person was that my ministry is not my own private possession. It has never been mine. My ministry belongs to the whole church. And the call process, even though it is deeply personal and individual, is public precisely because it takes the whole church to discern the wisdom of God's will, to discern the mind of Christ, as Paul says here. And so over these past weeks, we've listened carefully. We've listened carefully to members from all the churches that we've been called to. We've listened carefully to mentors and peers and colleagues. We've listened carefully to family and friends. We've listened carefully to the hopes and prayers of the whole body of Christ as we continue to pray. And we continue to pray over this coming week as we continue to discern. I'm not making my announcement here and now. Don't worry. As we continue to discern. We pray that we will make a decision that is pleasing both to the Spirit and to us that gives God all the glory. People of God, the mystery that the Apostle lays before us here is profound. Because Paul tells us that by listening for the voice of the Spirit of God in one another, we are able to discern the very mind of Christ. 
that by setting aside our own desires and by listening humbly to one another, we are able to discern the will of God. And that is a power that we ought not to take lightly, one that we ought not to abuse, but rather in humility and grace to speak as we feel led, so that together we might discern God's will for his church. I think this is a story that I've told before, but it seems appropriate to me to tell it again here. The story of my own calling to ministry um, is an example in and of itself of how God speaks in and through the whole church. My parents, when they decided to name me John, were so careful to never pressure me into going into ministry that I never really considered it when I was growing up. I started at Calvin as a pre-med student planning on going on to medical school. And when I found that my grades were floundering in the hard sciences, my advisor recommended that I take the core liberal arts curriculum and figure out what it was that I really loved, what really came naturally to me. And it wasn't until my final year at university when I was double majoring in religion and Greek that I found myself wondering, what am I going to do with this degree? To which my advisor said, obviously you're going to apply to seminary. But even after enrolling in seminary, my plan was not to go on to ministry. I felt that I didn't have a powerful enough story of call. I felt like my colleagues and peers in the seminary had such certainty in their hearts that this was what God was calling them to do, and I had never felt that kind of a pull in my life. God never spoke to me with dramatic signs and conversion experiences. His methods with, with me were much more subtle. A nudge here, a whisper there. In seminary, I ended up being drawn to classes that I didn't expect. I loved the academic courses, of course, the theology, the history, the language studies, and I knew that already going in. But while I was in seminary, I also fell in love with other classes, with worship and preaching and pastoral care and catechism teaching. Professors and colleagues and mentors started to encourage me to think about whether God might be calling me to ministry. My home church encouraged me to preach on a more regular basis. Kind old men told me that they hoped that I became a pastor instead of going on for further education. And kind old women told me they hoped their grandchildren could have someone like me as their pastor. And slowly, through encouraging words, piercing questions, measured advice, and faithful prayer, God's will for my life became clear. Yes, God? <laughs> this is the truth that the apostle offers us here in this passage. The bad news is that there is no one who carries the secret to the knowledge of God's will. The good news is that God has poured out his spirit on us all. And together, when we listen to one another in careful deliberation, in committees, in assemblies, in the fellowship of God's people. 
we are able to discern his will and even know the mind of Christ. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, Oh, Lord our God, what a powerful gift you give us that by your Spirit in our midst we may hear your voice speaking in and through one another and together through the careful work of humility, of mutual submission, and of careful deliberation, we may discern your will and know what is right. Lord, we pray that you will continue to be with us, especially in this time of transition as we seek your will for this church. May the mind of Christ our Savior reign in us now and forevermore. 